This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. Elizabeth Varon's Longstreet is a bold new biography that tells the story of the most remarkable political about face in American history. During the Civil War, General James Longstreet fought tenaciously for the Confederacy. He was alongside Lee at Gettysburg and counseled him not to order the ill-fated attacks on entrenched Union forces there. He won a major Confederate victory and was seriously wounded during a long battle. Elizabeth Varon is a Langbourne M. Williams Professor of American History at the University of Virginia and a member of the Executive Council of UVA's John L. Now, the Third Center for Civil War History. Varon's books include Southern Lady, Yankee Spy, The True Story, of Elizabeth Van Loo, a Union agent in the heart of the Confederacy in Appomattox, victory, defeat, and freedom at the end of the Civil War. Her most recent book, Armies of Deliverance, A New History of the Civil War, won the 2020 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize and was named one of the Wall Street Journal's best books of 2019. I am happy to have Elizabeth Varon join me for the first time here on Speaking of Writers. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much, Steve. It's delightful to be here with you. Why Longstreet as a subject for you, Elizabeth? Well, Steve, I am a historian of the American South, first and foremost, and have been very interested in political divisions within the South, the complexity of Southern history, political dissenters in the South, political mavericks in the South. You mentioned in your intro that I wrote a biography of a white Southern woman, Elizabeth Van Loo, who became a Union spy master of spying for the North in Confederate Richmond during the Civil War. And I was drawn to Longstreet's story for some of the same reasons I was drawn to Van Loo's story. Here's a person in Longstreet who, like Van Loo, utterly defies our expectations. As you said in your opening, Longstreet was a Confederate general. He was a product of the Plantation South, pro-slavery, pro-Confederate, ardently pro-secession Confederate who fought for four years as a general in the Confederate Army, second only to Robert E. Lee in both importance and, and stature, rank and reputation. Uh, and then Longstreet in what I call the most remarkable political about face in American history, because I, I can't think of a more remarkable one. There, there may be uh, one, but this one certainly is noteworthy. Longstreet, after the Civil War, after Southern defeat, after Appomattox, after Grant's victory over Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in 1867, Longstreet, in a very, very uh, unanticipated move, unlikely move, Longstreet supports post-war reconstruction, Congress's plan to remake the Southern states. The centerpiece of that plan is uh, is enfranchising formerly enslaved African-American men and, and uh, forming coalition uh, governments to sort of uh, modernize Southern life. And what makes this so unlikely is that Longstreet who spent his four years as a Confederate general, now pivots, beginning in 1867, to a nearly 40-year career as an influential political operative. And he's an operative on behalf of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party at this moment in the mid-19th century is the party of Abraham Lincoln, of the Union, of the North, of, of, of the North's victory in the war, of emancipation, of reconstruction, of black civil rights. In other words, the Republican Party is all that most uh, Confederates and ex-Confederates sort of loathe and fear. So for Longstreet to embrace the Republican Party and then sort of double down on that commitment over the course of his his political career is quite, quite remarkable. So he moves to New Orleans. Why the about face and why did he reject the lost cause? 
Yeah, so that's really the heart of the story. We we um, know that the costs of the about face to him and to his reputation were were very very high. He is once he he embraces the Republican Party in Reconstruction, he's branded a Benedict Arnold, a Judas, a race traitor. He's he's a pariah in among former Confederates and sort of cast out of the uh, Confederate pantheon. And so the question of why, well, that's at the heart of this book. And what I argue is that. It's a sort of confluence of factors. Uh, he experienced some very searing personal tragedy uh, during the war, the loss in the space of one week of three young children to scarlet fever that really demoralized him. He became very frustrated over the course of the Civil War with Confederate logistical failures and infighting and missed opportunities. And of course, his famous rejection of Lee's plan to go on the tactical offensive at Gettysburg and Longstreet's pleading with him to, to fight on the defensive and, and so on is, is, is the part of that story of, of Longstreet's frustration. Uh, he starts to brood over the course of the war about Confederate failings, particularly the sort of moral failing of hubris or arrogance. So he's he doesn't lose, the way I put it in the book, is it's not that he loses faith in the Confederate cause, but he loses confidence in it. And that sort of predisposes him to welcome U.S. Grant's remarkable offer of peace uh, and at Appomattox, Grant essentially says to Confederates, if you you know repent of your ways, you're you're free to to go to your homes and resume your your lives without without stern punishments for your insurrection and rebellion. Longstreet is so receptive to Grant's offer because they are dear dear friends from their West Point days, and so that friendship with Grant is another huge factor, along with Longstreet's sort of personal family tragedies and his frustrations with the Confederate war effort and how the war is won, run, and ultimately lost. His friendship with Grant is a key uh, factor. And then that move to New Orleans is also a key factor in that New Orleans has a very distinct political environment, a very politically active and assertive class of free Blacks, many sort of Afro-Creoles with French and Spanish lineage, deep roots in the region. Um, some of them had been soldiers during the, the uh, Civil War. Some indeed had been officers for the Union Army. And this unique environment also shapes Longstreet's choice. So it's a sort of combination of personal uh, and, and political factors. Ultimately, he believes that the Republicans have won the war, that their military victory it has served as the sort of arbitrator of the political disputes between the North and South, and that the, he must now yield in good faith, uh, in, in deference to Grant's magnanimity, he must yield uh, and make amends. Longstreet was one of the highest ranking Confederate generals. He has never been commemorated with statues or other memorials in the South because of his post-war actions in rejecting the lost cause mythology and urging racial reconciliation. So, Elizabeth, why is he being rediscovered now? Well, his story is relevant in, in so many ways and fascinating in so many ways. I mean, to me, the, the way that he accepted defeat uh, and then proved willing to change in the face of sort of white Southern intransigence after the Civil War. His, in a way, his greatest provocation was his willingness uh, to change. And, you know, in our modern day era of polarization, we think of everyone as so dug in, it's hard to imagine that people might change and can change and do change. So that uh, makes the story fascinating. Um, but it's also, there's so many, you know, modern resonances. As you, as you mentioned, he's been invoked a lot recently uh, as we think about Confederate 
memory and memorialization. He's the sort of exception that proves the rule since he was not useful once he'd embraced Reconstruction, not useful to the Confederates as a symbol of white supremacy and the lost cause. They didn't honor him the way that they honored uh, people like Lee and Jackson. Uh, and so that only proves the absence of monuments to Longstreet, proves and illustrates that those statues to Lee and Jackson and so on were indeed symbols of white supremacy and of and of the regime of slavery and of the, the lost cause and all of its glorification of the Confederacy. And he just didn't fit that role. But he's also, you know, an, an interesting piece of relevance here too is, is insurrection and political violence. Longstreet's commitment to Reconstruction is tested in the 1870s. He's an office holder in Louisiana. Uh, he forges alliances with other Republicans, black and white in Louisiana. And, and white supremacists, clan-like groups that call themselves the White League in Louisiana, try to overthrow the duly elected Republican government, uh, interracial government of Louisiana in 1874 in a coup attempt, and Longstreet leads black and white troops against some of his own former Confederate soldiers in a sharp battle uh, Canal Street, September 14th, 1874. In this attempted coup, it takes really the arrival of federal troops to restore the Republicans' control over the city. The coup is successful for a few days. And no one in that coup attempt really faces accountability. It's a sign uh, ultimately, the the coup itself and the ways in which those who perpetrated it escaped accountability is a symbol of a kind of retreat from Reconstruction that happens in America as we get uh, into the 1870s. Uh, and that forces Longstreet to pivot again. He's quite traumatized by the loss of that battle and, again, by the uh, failure to bring any of the perpetrators to account. And he moves to Georgia, where he has family roots, and he really focuses on defending his civil war record from a host of detractors. And really one of the most important points the book makes is that Longstreet's reputation as a Confederate is very, very strong and positive until he commits to Reconstruction, until he allies with uh, African-American activists and politicians in New Orleans, until he leads these troops of the state militia against white supremacists. It's, it's uh, The attacks on his wartime record are a backlash against his post-war politics. Chatting with Elizabeth Varon here on Speaking of Writers, her new book is Longstreet, the Confederate General Who Defied the South. Elizabeth, what was your research process like for this book? So Longstreet, uh, thankfully, has left a very uh, extensive record of his own voice, a 690-page memoir that's really focused on the war and countless interviews and essays on the war, published speeches, letters, diplomatic dispatches, and so on. So his body of work, if you will, is quite large. And I, I felt that it had not been analyzed. His voice, uh, his political voice is a really interesting and informative political voice that can tell us a lot about the transformative changes of this era, but also the sort of entrenched uh, inequities of this Civil War and Reconstruction era. And he has a sort of in, in, there's an image of him in, in our in our popular culture and and in, and in scholarship as as a sort of gruff, taciturn man of few words. But I found that not to be the case at all. He was a voluble, prolific writer and speaker who loved to sort of lean into an interview and 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 hold forth on all manner of uh, sort of political questions. And and as such, he is really one of the most revealing sort of public voices of the 19th century. He lived a long time from 1821 to 1904. So that life and, and the records of that life 
cover for us the pre-war antebellum period, the war reconstruction, and then the post-war and post-reconstruction period, uh, you know, really to the into the 20th century. So it's just a fascinating and quite extensive record. Elizabeth, what do you think is Longstreet's legacy? So uh, that's uh, uh, fascinating. I mean, as I, as I said, he accepted defeat gracefully with a measure of grace. That's, you know, something that makes him relevant. He had the courage to change his convictions. That's something that's relatively rare in our political life, in our history. And that's fascinating. And again, once he committed himself to reconstruction, he he remained committed, uh, which is uh, to, to the, again, that centerpiece of black of black voting, uh, even though there were many potential off ramps uh, for him uh, as the um, sort of 19th century uh, unfolded. Um, but he also shows in some ways the limits of white Southern tolerance for transformative change in the sort of last act of his public life after New Orleans when he moves back to Georgia. As he gets older, grows more nostalgic about the past, tries to claw back some of his lost popularity among Southern whites. Uh, he essentially is a man not only of shifting loyalties, but of divided loyalties, who wants to believe that he can both be a respected, honored, proud Confederate and a respected, honored, proud Republican. The message he gets again and again is you can't be both. You have to choose one over the other. But he does try to sort of, you know, play both sides, if you will. And it, it illustrates, among other things, a sort of um, sort of troubling piece of the story that white Southerners like him who did decide to ally with the Republican coalition and try to transform the South were the sort of weak link in the coalition. They ultimately were susceptible to all kinds of social pressures and so on to, to drift back towards their prior uh, beliefs. And there is some of that that drifting in, in, in his case. And as I said, he's, he is that exception that proves the rule that uh, Confederate uh, memorialization was really focused on defending uh, the racial politics of the Confederacy of slavery and white supremacy. Uh, and, and he is, as I said, a sort of cautionary tale about the need for accountability in our in our politics. So the fact that he can function in all of these ways, essentially, he formed alliances with a wide range of political actors, white northerners, white southerners who were in favor of a kind of new remade South, uh, African-Americans in the South who who needed some white allies in the region. But he was never fully trusted by any of them because of his, again, this this kind of desire on his part to harmonize these uh, not easily reconciled parts of his own political identity. So at the end of the day, he he's illustrates just how complex political identities are. And, and in some ways, the elusiveness of reconciliation among Southerners, we talk often about uh, the reconciliation between the North and South after the Civil War, but Longstreet, as he is his, his record at Gettysburg is litigated and relitigated de decade after decade by his white Southern critics who will never forgive him for the stance he took in New Orleans and therefore never re readmit him into what they consider to be the sort of uh, list of the of the Confederacy's military heroes. We see this endless um, relitigation. And uh, this tells us something about, again, the elusiveness of reconciliation among Southerners. The book is Longstreet, the Confederate general who defied the South. The author is Elizabeth Varon. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. And this is Speaking of Writers.